Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions, it's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. I'm Jeremy Heiner. And my co-host, Sass Elisha, is not with us today. Instead, we have a treat. We have a super fun episode in store for you where we welcome Mark Gavin. Mark is a CRNA and a faculty member with us at Kaiser Permanente School of Anesthesia. And in this episode, Mark and I, we actually presented at the 2023 AANA Annual Congress in Seattle where we recorded a podcast and we called it Crisis Management On Demand. We call it Crisis Management On Demand because as a podcast episode, you can access it whenever and wherever you want. And with these clinical episodes, hey, maybe you want to listen to it while you're running. Maybe you want to listen to it while you're walking or even just chilling on the couch. In this episode, we're going to talk about crisis, but more about how we think during a crisis, how our brains operate. We'll talk about some of the unconscious biases that exist, as well as a cognitive template for crisis management. And for more information on that cognitive template, a deeper dive into it, you can refer back to our June 13th, 2023 episode, Managing Perioperative Crises with a Cognitive Template. And this was actually published in the AANA Journal in April of 2023. Now, Mark and I, we also have some fun with some of the guests in the audience. And you'll hear this during the episode where we invite one of the authors of the article, of the Cognitive Template article, and program director at Oregon Health and Science University Nurse Anesthesia Program, Lisa Osborne-Smith. We next invite Cormac O'Sullivan, who is the program director at the University of Iowa Nurse Anesthesia Program. Cormac and his colleague, Heather Baer, head up the anesthesia simulation experience at the AANA Annual Congress, and they've been doing that for several years. And finally, we invite, you know them, the hosts of the Beyond the Mass podcast, both Sharon Pierce and Jeremy Stanley, up on stage to talk about the origins of the Beyond the Mass podcast. So get ready. The following is our presentation at the AANA Annual Congress in Seattle this year. It is go time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. 
Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks, including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. Thank you guys for being here this morning, uh, bright and early. I hope you all have coffee. Mark and I are really, really excited to be in front of you and uh, to talk a little bit about crisis management and specifically the on-demand part because we're going to release this as a podcast episode. Um, all right, to get things going here, what we will be talking about is primarily how we think about thinking. Mm. So how do we think during a crisis when a crisis occurs? Then we're going to go into a cognitive framework, and specifically one that was published in the ANA Journal just recently. And we're going to talk about how that cognitive framework could potentially help during a crisis situation. So an organized way of thinking. And then, as I mentioned, we're going to finish up by talking about the on-demand portion and podcasting. Okay, so um, some of you may know that uh, our school has a YouTube channel. Kaiser Permanente School of Anesthesia. We've, we have uh, been making small videos, we call them trigger films, for several years now. And we've built up a library, probably about 70 or 80 films at this point. And, and we, the reason we call them trigger films is because many of them are very short, you know, 30 seconds, a minute long. And our intention for making these trigger films, and they're clinically based, um, some of them educationally based, but uh, is, is essentially to trigger an, F, an, an event or an episode or set the stage. So most of them, most of the trigger films deal with critical events, crisis management. So we're gonna go ahead and set the stage here with one of our trigger films. And it's, it's just a very basic film with a vital sign screen. All right, so you play this with a bunch of anesthesia students, and heart rates start going up. It's that desat tone right there. That's all it takes, is that desaturation tone to get the hair standing up on your arm. So now, we have a crisis. We have something going on. What do we do? We bust out our trusty crisis checklist, right? We break them out. But wait, look at how many crises are on here. Which one do I choose? That was desaturation. That could be several of these. What is the way? How do our brains work? What's the way of thinking that will help us get to the actual crisis that's happening so that we can provide the correct management? All right, I'm going to turn the mic over here to Dr. Gabbitt. So a couple of slides ago, we witnessed a patient's SpO2 decreasing precipitously. Now, when this happens to us in the operating room, what is our normal course of action? What are the systematic things that we do as CRNAs or as SRNAs to treat that patient? Now, for every single practitioner, that process is going to look a little bit different, right? Based on our training, our education, as well as our clinical experience that we've developed over time. But at the end of the day, we've all developed our own mental model of what to follow in terms of treating that patient. Now this scenario was just one aberrant number, right? 
but at the same time, we have other numbers and other clinical indices that will affect our clinical judgment. So why are we talking about mental models to begin with? Well, before I answer that question, what I want you to do is bring your minds back to 1946. In 1946, there was a musical entitled Annie Get Your Gun. In that musical, there's a show tune that begins by saying, anything you can do, I can do. Better. Not better, but meta. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the social media company. What I'm talking about here is metacognition. Having the ability to think about the way you think in the operating room, right? We all create these mental models of how we can best treat our patients. We've developed them over time, based again on our training, our education, our clinical experiences. But how can these mental models help our patients, like having the checklist, but how can they actually hurt our patients by creating the wrong types of mental models? Now that Mark set the, set the stage there in terms of, of thinking and mental models, the first thing about thinking is to recognize how our brains work. And essentially, we have, we have two modes of thinking when we make rapid decisions. And this is based on the Nobel Prize winning psychologist's work, Daniel Kahneman, where he's described system one and system two thinking. Now, system one is more intuitive. This actually handles about 95% of the rapid decision-making process. It's, it works automatically. We don't have to think about it. It's, there's no sense of voluntary control, there's no effort, and it happens very, very quickly. In terms of system one thinking, it's developed based on our uh, intuition, based on our instinct, our past experiences, our perceptions of past events, and it's also developed from our biases. Now compare that with system two. System two is slower. System two is slower. In terms of system one, how it is so fast, it comes from the limbic system. The limbic system is deep in our brain. And when we talk about not having to think about it, that's where the limbic system comes in, specifically a part of the limbic system called the amygdala. From our eyes and from our ears, there is a direct pathway into the amygdala. I like to call it the cowbell of our brain. So if we see something or if we hear something, if we perceive something that is problematic or stressful or dangerous, automatically that cowbell is gonna sound. And then we get our sympathetic response, we get these mental models that come up, we get this system one initiation. So again, very quick. Contrasting that to system two, which is much slower, it's deliberate. It's rational thought. The neural connections and the neural pathways that go from our perceptions to the prefrontal cortex, which is where our, where our rational thought is, they're much slower. That is system two thinking. And system two thinking, it is involved in rapid decision making, but look, it's only 5% of it. We have to slow down and, and really start thinking through a process uh, before we activate our system two thinking. Now, most of, what we, most of what we do is initiated in system one. But system two will take over when things get hard and we need to do some work. And system two does have the last thought. Now, our brains were not meant to handle a constant cognitive load. 
So we don't necessarily have to think about system two all the time. And so what our brains have done over time and how they've evolved is by de developing something called heuristics. Have you guys heard of heuristics before? Okay, so heuristics, essentially, these are mental shortcuts. They're, they're a way to, they're things that we develop in our brain to make it so we don't have to think about every little thing I do. So at the end of this presentation, if I'm talking with Mark, I don't have to think about walking down the stairs. I can still carry on my conversation with him and hopefully not trip. As I'm walking down the stairs, that is part of what our brains do to allow us to do multiple things without really thinking about it. Now, heuristics, they also help us with problematic type things or, or things that, that are a little more complex as we, as we learn, as we grow, as we develop, and we gain experience. That will all help in the development of our heuristics. They're also developed based on our emotions and some of our past experiences. So think about when you started anesthesia and you went to anesthesia school and you had certain experiences as a student and then maybe even as a young clinician, those probably influenced the way you do certain things as an anesthesia provider. And over time, as you do them more and more often, you're not gonna have to think very much about it. Heuristics are a fancy way of, of, of saying, basically it's a rule of thumb for how we operate. And you can also equate it with our intuition, you know, our gut feeling. When something's going on, we have that intuition or gut feeling. Those are our heuristics going forward. Now, the problem with heuristics is that they're not perfect. They don't always work. They're not always correct. So they can lead to clinical errors. They can be influenced by biases. And you can see here on this slide, there are a numerous amount of cognitive biases and errors that could happen. Most of these we do not consciously think about. So has there been any research on cognitive errors and biases? Well, you know how the saying goes, what's old is new again? In 2002, Kramer and others published a study of clinical decision-making by certified registered nurse anesthetists in the AANA journal. In this study, what the authors sought to do was to analyze cases from the AANA Foundation Closed Malpractice Claims Database. And what they actually looked for were types of cognitive errors and biases that contributed most to these malpractice cases. So what did they actually find? They found that there were three types of cognitive errors and biases that contributed most to these cases. They were anchoring, hindsight bias, and availability bias. Now you must be asking yourself, what do these actually mean? Well, anchoring is to rely too heavily on the first piece of information offered which serves as the anchor for your actual diagnosis. And it's not a good anchor in a sense of like a ship. It actually drags you down in the sense that you start to just focus on that one initial diagnosis. So these practitioners, these nurse anesthetists, had a tendency, a tendency not to deviate from an early diagnosis. And worse yet, they even ignored contradictory evidence. For hindsight bias, the tendency was to perceive past events as more predictable than they actually were. And this can lead the CRNA to take unnecessary risks. So these CRNAs actually reacted to new information with the feeling that it was known all along. And lastly, availability bias. In this instance, the CRNA 
incorrectly believe that recent events will occur again soon. This was a uh, problem with estimating probabilities. Essentially, the CRNA over-relied on their own clinical experience and focused on more common, potentially more likely diagnoses. So if we go back to our original scenario, if we were to look at these three concepts of cognitive errors and biases, maybe the CRNA would focus solely on the SpO2 and maybe the heart rate and say, oh, you know, the patient might be a little bit light. They might not be able to be ventilated. And they would ignore something like a sloping end tidal carbon dioxide waveform. Or maybe for hindsight bias, they may see the blood pressure and say, well, you know, the blood pressure is fine. I'm going to sort of hopefully get through this towards the end of the case and they'll make it through. Or in terms of the availability bias, they may say, well, you know, it's most likely going to be a bronchospasm, so I'll treat it that way and focus on that more than anything else. There's a medical saying that goes like this. When you hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras. But sometimes it might be a zebra. So again, the three common types are going to be anchoring, hindsight bias, and availability bias. Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com, your trusted provider for CPC core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. Okay, so now, now that we've set the stage and talked about all this technical stuff, how can we actually put it into practice? How can we actually use the fact that, or, or realize the fact that we have biases? How can we use our system one, our system two, our heuristic thinking? Well, there is a way. So there's an article that was published in the ANA Journal this year, in April. And it was published by Dr. Barry Swerdlow and Dr. Lisa Osborne-Smith. And they both work at Oregon Health Science University. And it's titled, A Cognitive Template for the Management of Perioperative Adverse Events. And in this template, they identify six ways that we can approach and then manage a crisis event. And when you break it down, you can kind of break down steps one through three as our system one type of thinking. So let's say we have hypotension. So hypotension pops up on the monitor. What's one of the first things we do? We verify it, right? We'll redo the blood pressure. We'll make sure that nobody's, that the resident isn't uh, up against the arm compressing the cuff. Or if we're looking at the A-line, we make sure that the transducer is zeroed correctly. And then we're going to do a, a pretty generic response, right? We're going to, if it's verified, we're going to decrease our anesthetic, increase our fluids, perhaps give a vasopressor. And then we're going to start thinking, okay, well, what was the last thing that happened? 
You know, was this right after induction? Was it right after insufflation? So all of these are going to happen pretty automatically because we see them so often. And we've developed heuristic thinking around these. Now, system two comes in with steps four through six, where we formulate a broad category of potential problems. So could it be any of the shock states, anaphylaxis, MI, any, any of them, hypovolemia, hemorrhage? Could it be a PE? Could it be something else? And by process of elimination, we're going to get to step five on more of a specific cause. That's when we can bring in the checklists and manage the crisis in step six. Now, when talking about this cognitive template, wait a second, you guys, we have Lisa Osborne Smith here in the room with us. Oh my gosh, Lisa, can you please come up here and talk to us about your article? Oh my gosh, this is fantastic. I didn't, please come on up. All right, this is gonna be fun, you guys. Lisa Osborne Smith, everyone. Come on right up here, we have a chair for you. Wow, this is so exciting. Great, great. Well, thank you. Thank, have a seat, please. Well, hi, yeah, Jeremy or stand and Mark. Up, whatever. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Careful when you go to these. Moments. All right. No, we we uh, we've got some questions for you. So, Lisa, can you talk to us why or what? Uh, how did you decide you you and Dr. Swordlow? Uh, how did you decide to uh, to write this article? You know, when we developed this cognitive template at our school, we were using it for students, and it works so well that we thought we have to share this with other people because, you know, I think obviously I'm coming from a, pro a program administrator point of view and thinking about how do we teach critical thinking for students because it's hard work. And I always get nervous because a lot of times when we assess our students, we're assessing them with things like multiple choice exams and that type of thing. And how do we know that students can actually respond to crises in the OR and how do we know that they can respond to something that's more like the zebra, you know? Because we, we can only do so many things in the simulation center and that type of thing. I also know that we have students that really do have some tendencies for certain kinds of errors. And so trying to find a way to help them to keep from fixating on a particular variable. We really loved how this tool worked for us. And yeah. it was really helpful too you know, when you're trying to precept a student to be able to have a template so that we have a language to talk about it so that you can say, you know, you're getting stuck on step two. It's time for us to move into, because without that, we don't have a way to talk about it. Yeah. And yeah. so that we sounds... were thrilled um, to share it with everyone. And I just want to, Barry Swerdlow, could you just stand up? I want everybody to know he's also here. Um, he's my, <clears throat> he's my amazing colleague. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for this work because, uh, you know, we, we teach differential diagnosis and I know a lot of programs do, a lot of faculty do, and just to have kind of an outlined way to do that um, is, is very helpful. So, Lisa, tell me, how does an individual typically respond to a crisis when it happens to them in the operating room? Well, I think it depends on the level of the provider. The student freezes <laughs> a lot of times. But, you know, when you think about it, we have these instinctual things that we do very, very quickly. And, um, and that's useful because those heuristic things that you were talking about are not only ways to help us quickly respond, but it also kind of helps us conserve our energy. 
because we're taking a data the whole time we're doing an anesthetic. And so when you think about, you know, we turn up the O2 or maybe we turn up some fluids without a lot of energy and without a lot of um, sympathetic response from, from the provider. And I think that the key here in these steps is that it is important to, to find the place where you need to start engaging your systems to thinking and begin to have an organized way of looking at the potential um, diagnoses, the differential diagnoses, and understanding how to um, narrow that differential diagnosis is what's so important. When I think about when I was a student, of course, that was a really, really long time ago, um, I used to have all of these cards that I had lists of things. You know, I had, what are all the reasons that someone would have bradycardia? What are all the reasons someone would have tachycardia? And I think that's the the problem is it's very challenging to keep all of those things on that list, you know, right at the tip of your tongue all the time. I just don't think that's how our brains function. And so that's the other reason why I think this is important is that it gives you a way um, to systematically work through that. So for this cognitive template, do you think it would help with g rapid generic responses um, versus slower abstract reasoning? You know, the generic responses often work just fine. If the O2 stats are going down and, and your generic response is to turn up the FiO2, most of the time that's a reasonable action, unless perhaps you have a very um, strong chance of airway fire and your goal was to keep the FiO2 low. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an example of why even the generic responses you should at least let the surgeon know that you're going to turn up the FiO2. But the nice thing about the generic responses is that it gives you something to do while you're able to engage your systems to thinking. The um, more specific responses, we have taught um, our students to really divide it into very broad categories. And so, and to the point of being almost simplistic. So if you're yeah. thinking about hypercarbia, you know, just the very broad categories of it could be something related to overproduction or it could be that we're failing to eliminate CO2. Literally that broad. Because then the kinds of things that you would list under that are easier for you to recall. Or it could be an exogenous source. Mm -hmm. You know, because our students sometimes in laparoscopic cases are quite certain the patient has MH. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah, it's, it's great when you have a simulation and um, all of a sudden the, you know, the end title will go up and boom. MH. Mm -hmm. Well, wait, no, let's look at the machine. Let's look at the granules. Let's look at everything else. Right. I like that, how you start with the broad category. So it's kind of like a, a big funnel, mm -hmm. and then you're zeroing in, and this provides kind of a, a process of doing that. I, I'm interested to know, like, where, where did you guys come up with the six-step uh, cognitive template? Where did it come from? We actually had a lot of fun doing this. I, you know, I, I appreciate having Barry Swerdlow on faculty because he's willing to tolerate some of my conversations. And we had long conversations about what do we do? And let's see if we can sort of come up with, is there kind of a process? And so you'll see that there are things, you know, we obviously were drawing upon things like Daniel Kahneman's mm -hmm. systems thinking and, and others because, you know, there are all kinds of algorithms out there and checklists that are out there. And so we are drawing on some of that. But um, this really is something that, that came um, mostly from Barry Swerdlow's brain. But, um, it, but, but it was a result of a lot of conversations and thinking about how do, how do we do this? And it doesn't mean that it couldn't be revised. We love feedback. If people have comments, um, we really want it to be useful because when you get to the point where you're narrowing, things can get 
a little bit challenging. And so that's where I think it is important to think about what lab values, what other data would you need to be able to rule that out? Because I think that's the point where people start to falter. And, you know, there are kinds of cases that can really be challenging. If you've ever had a chance to do any expert legal review work, I certainly recommend that you do it because it's in incredibly enlightening. And you can see that some of these cases, it would be challenging to try to come up with this diagnosis. And, you know, things like um, when you have a prone case where you have maybe a, a lot of bleeding in the retroperitoneal space, that's you're not seeing that in the suction canister. And so you at the head of the table are dealing with, you know, worsening hypotension, you've done all of the steps, you've given all the fluids, you have vasopressors going, you know, and, a lot, and you can see a lot of times it isn't until people even have decreasing end tidal CO2 that people realize, you know, we're actually getting into actual trouble and that probably could have been um, discovered sooner than that. And I, I think that that's the thing is we have these biases related to how much of a hassle is it to convert to something else? How much of a hassle is it to convert to a different type of anesthetic? That's the times that I think that we start to really draw in the bias. And so I think it's important um, to notice that because, you know, in that type of a case, you know, sending off arterial blood gases sooner what are the other pieces of data that would help you narrow that down? And I think it's kind of fun as an educator because that's the part that we can design education around how do we discriminate some of these things that are a little more challenging and we can kind of focus our education. And so I think this is a template to help um, educators teach about the response to certain types of things. And, um, and, that, and we utilize it as a template for when we're doing adverse event simulations in, in our sim center, and then we can also use it in the clinical setting. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. You make a good point in the sense that hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? And so the good thing about um, simulation is you're able to reset everything and even run the scenario again, right? Um, so how have you actually used a six-step cognitive template in simulation training for your students? We try to run through um, the pulmonary and cardiac and, and some of those types of sims. We, we do focus on some things that happen commonly because it is important that students can work through this when it's not something that's very rare, um, just to get our students ready for, for the clinical setting. And I love simulation because it allows us at times to kind of stop reality and talk about things because I think sometimes um, that's the problem in the operating room is that we, we still have a patient we have to take care of. So it's nice to be able to, when someone's getting off track, to be able to stop the scenario and say, okay, let's hold right there and talk about some things. And, and we do have some teaching sims, which is my term for ones that we intend to stop and talk at specific spots where we don't just run the sim and let the student do the entire simulation incorrectly. Yeah. A lot of times that's, there's not a lot of value in, in letting them continue down that road. And so we do use these. Um, 
I always think it's kind of interesting, you know, like how many simulations should you do for something like MH compared to um, some of the more common kinds of things. So yeah. we do it for some of the, the rare things as well. And I think, you know, those kind of simulations can be nice because they, all of the students are not going to see an MH case in their training, I don't believe. So um, it's nice for them to have a chance to experience what right. that, uh, something like that would be. But you can see that our template would be very nice for them to work their way through something like MH diagnoses as well. No, that sounds perfect. Yeah, I like that, how you can, you can provide common scenarios and uncommon scenarios. Mm -hmm. And then do you guys use checklists as well? We do. Um, you know, and I, I would say one thing that's interesting to note about our, our template is that, you know, there are all kinds of cognitive aids out there. Our program, we use the, the Stanford Emergency Manual, and it's a free download. I don't feel funny um, passing that information to you. We'd like it because it, they do update it, and so as you know, you can go and make sure that you're downloading the most recent update. But when you think about our template, the um, Stanford Emergency Manual has you know algorithms, but the point is you have to be on the right page. So our template is trying to help you get through those steps so that then you can turn to you know the card that says local anesthetic toxicity or or whatever. And I actually like their um, algorithm because it actually has a places in their algorithm that says, have you considered going to page two? Because they're trying to tell yeah. you, you're not on the, even on the right page. And so that is partly when we developed this, was what we were doing is trying to help people at least get to the right algorithm. Yeah. And, and I think these cognitive templates are great. I think um, they should be in anesthesia cart so that people can pull them out. Yeah, um, that is help. definitely one of the benefits of the, of the Stanford one. Um, right. You know, maybe don't stick here on this, on this template. Right. So we have, uh, we're going to do a little shameless plug here. Um, we have a book coming out uh, early 2024. Uh, this is actually a follow-up to the first book that uh, Mark, myself, and, and our colleague uh, Sass Elisha wrote, Critical Events in Anesthesia. And we've used that book for over 10 years in helping us develop simulation scenarios. But when we first developed it, we wanted it to be small. We wanted it to fit in a scrub pocket so that people could take it into the OR, so clinicians could take it into the OR. So for years, we've been wanting to do an update, and we finally uh, got it done. We, we, fixed, uh, we, fi we got all the, um, all the decisions made, and, and we've made uh, a number of different updates. There are 47 chapters in this book. Now, we've, we've retitled it Emergency Management and Anesthesia and Critical Care because we didn't want it to be a resource just for anesthesia providers, but for anywhere that critical care is provided. And our main goals for writing this were to provide a resource for clinicians in anesthesia and critical care. Again, we wanted to keep it small, put it in a scrub pocket. I mean, we, we still still have our phones, but there's still something to be said about having a, just a resource you can just quickly flip to. In addition, we wanted to develop a resource for educators. We know that critical events is used a lot in simulation, so we wanted to uh, improve this and write more chapters. And then we also wanted to provide a resource for students as they're learning anesthesia, as they're learning critical care. And so again, we have 47 chapters coming out early 2024. So as I talked about earlier, there was a study back in 2002 in the ANA Journal. But what's something more recent? What's more recent data that we've actually collected? Well, the ANA Foundation, just maybe two, three years ago, actually did a closed claims analysis of actual malpractice claims against CRNAs. And what they were able to do is categorize 
those closed claims into basically four main categories, which are going to be cardiac, respiratory, pediatric, and obstetric. Now, these are very broad categories, as you can see. But how has the AANA itself met this challenge of preparing CRNAs to best take care of their patients? So the AANA, throughout this whole weekend, have had multiple simulation trainings. For cardiac, it's the management of myocardial infarction. Respiratory, they've actually divided it into an airway skills lab, which Jeremy and I, as well as our students from Kaiser Permanente School of Anesthesia, have been running for the past two days. They also have a difficult airway simulation lab as well. For pediatric, they have pediatric respiratory failure, and for obstetric, OB hemorrhage. ANA simulation training has been occurring throughout the whole weekend for, wait, who's in it? Oh, so Cormac, it's Cormac Dr. Cormac O'Sullivan and Dr. Heather Bear have actually, they're in charge, yeah. they're in charge of it. I, I'm so surprised that they're here. Yeah, that's Cormac. Why don't you come up here, Cormac? Come on. <laughs> so, Dr. Cormac O'Sullivan is Program Director at the University of Iowa College of Nursing DMP Program in Nurse Anesthesia. He and Dr. Heather Bear, who is also in the audience, <laughs> spearhead the simulation process at the AANA since the beginning. Welcome, Dr. O'Sullivan. How are you? Thank you for coming up here. <laughs> so tell me, um, why and when did the AANA first approach you about doing simulation training? 2016-17, uh, Dr. Bear and myself had been doing um, simulation uh, as DMP projects around the state of Iowa, and we ran it at our state meeting, and it was well-received. And I happened to run into Bruce Shonaboom, who was the director of practice, and I was showing him some pictures of how we were doing. He's like, oh, that'd be cool. Can we do that at the national meeting? And I said to Heather, what do you think? And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> um, and we kind of put it together and organized it, and it went off well the first year, and so they've kind of asked us to do it every year since, and that's good. I think it's good. Yeah, it's been, it's been a fun time for sure. Um, how did you decide on the types of simulations? Actually, that's been covered a couple times this morning already. Um, <laughs> at that very first session, uh, the article you guys referenced was mm -hmm. a poster. And I was talking to Lorraine Jordan, and it's interesting. We talk about LAST, we talk about MH, and we simulate that a lot, but they're really, really rare events. Mm -hmm. The four that Dr. Gabbett just mentioned on the slide there are 80% of the closed claims against CRNAs. So we decided we were going to start focusing on those, and that's how we chose the simulations. And if we can focus on those and get every CRNA in the country to be good at those things, we can possibly reduce 80% of the claims against CRNAs for malpractice, and I think that would be a good thing to do. That would be a fantastic thing to do. So you've done this for how many years so far? This is the third, fourth, fifth, something like that. We had the two COVID years planned, and we ended up not doing those. Um, we've done it at the national meeting about three or four times. We've done a couple of state meetings, and we've, done, we've actually been invited to go do it at a facility, which we ended up then having to cancel that one too. Uh, but we would like to do it forever if we could. Awesome. So how has um, simulation evolved over the years at the AANA Annual Congress? Uh, so pretty quickly we realized uh, Heather and I can't do this by ourselves, so we started calling in a lot of friends, including yourselves, John O'Donnell from Pittsburgh, and some other people that are uh, certified healthcare simulation experts, uh, Chris Simmons, um, I'm blanking, uh, Beth Clayton for OB. So we wanted people that understood the scenarios that are causing the problems and are really good at simulation as well. 
And we started out the first year, I gave a lecture every time, and then we ran the simulations right after it, and I gave the same lecture four times. I had a god-awful cold, and by the end of the day, I didn't know how much Motrin, Tylenol, and cough syrup I had taken, I thought, I need to probably stop or I'm gonna ruin my liver. <laughs> and people, so then we kind of redid it the next year, and we just keep changing it up a little bit. Thankfully, with the support of the ANA, we've been able to increase the skills lab, which you guys are running. This year, we have pig trachs in it, so everybody mm -hmm. that goes to the skills lab is getting to do cricotherotomies on pig trachs and practice them. Um, and then the ANA has sort of fine-tuned how we get people in and out of the rooms. We have SRNA-specific sessions and then CRNA-specific sessions because in the past, the SRNAs were filling up all the sessions and CRNAs couldn't get into them. Uh, interestingly enough, some of all the SRNA sessions fill out and some of the CRNA sessions don't. So some of our colleagues don't want to do certain simulations and I would argue that those are the simulations we probably most need to do. The, the more we practice on this stuff, and uh, Lisa was talking about a little bit, you can stop in the middle, you can reset, you can rerun. We had an interesting experience at one of our sites. We, for instructors in the room, these are amazing DMP projects. We run them at all kinds of hospitals all over the state of Iowa. We got a lot of little rural critical access hospitals. But running the simulations and then rerunning them, one of our students uh, ran three of the four simulations at a hospital, and they had some travelers kind of coming through, and they had different teams every single time. But the team's ability to do crisis resource management principles, to call early, to have closed-loop communication, to set a leader, improved across time, even though they were different simulations and different teams. And they got very good at it by the end, and it got to the point where they were just snapping them. Uh, we had another experience with the students that were running the OB hemorrhage simulations at two of our clinical sites. And then serendipitously, they flipped about six months later, and we had them rerun it. And at one of the sites, they ran it at like noon that day. And at 8 p.m., the student was sitting in their call room and got a page on his, or a text message saying, get your ass down here. We're having a hemorrhage right now. And they had run it that morning, and everything just went great. So the more we do this stuff yeah. and practice it, you know, the techs know where to get the blood. Um, in some sites we have run into, the pharmacist stopped ordering intralipids because the hospital wasn't using it anymore, and it was too expensive, and they were still doing blocks. One of them, the hospital doesn't actually have blood in-house because they don't use it. You have to buy blood and keep it in your hospital, and when it expires, when you're doing locums practice as a CRNA, you probably need to know what resources are in the little hospital you're doing your locums in. They may not have a video scope. I would be shocked if they didn't, but they may not because of the cost of these things. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. If we're able to, you know, run these simulations, we could find out, you know, problems with the system. You know, the fact maybe, maybe those providers didn't realize that pharmacy had stopped ordering the intralipid. They and had no idea. And the fact that now they ran the simulation and said, okay, so how do we get these intralipids? Well, let's call, call pharmacy and fi figure out the process. Yeah. Wait, pharmacy doesn't have intralipids? Well, now we've identified a problem. We can fix it before an actual crisis happens. Yeah. Our own facility, we have the main operating rooms, the blood bank three door, uh, buildings over, and our ASC three buildings that way. Mm -hmm. Getting someone, and we had a massive transfusion incident in our ASC, and getting somebody to run to the blood bank and back, we actually just timed it on our iPhone. It was 16 minutes to get blood. So we came up with a process where a tech from the main OR has to run and start getting the first unit of blood. And they didn't know they would have a tech available, so they ran the simulation, Dr. Barron, one of our students, and the, patient, the simulated patient died. And they said, well, why did they die? We couldn't get the blood. And an administrator was on listening to the thing that said, okay, we're going to work something out here to make sure we get blood if they need it. 
So that, and that's at a major university academic medical center, and a patient died because we couldn't get the blood just because of the physical location of where they've located everything, which the engineers decided on. I had nothing to do with, but I'm going to be named in a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> so you've done this, you know, three, four, five years. Um, what are your future goals, or what do you want to um, gain from the simulation experience at the a and &E? What do you want learners to learn? Oh, boy. Um, one, we want them to learn to use a cognitive aid. There's nothing wrong with using a cognitive aid. It doesn't replace your brains. It doesn't replace your skills or your abilities. It just gets your thinking in order. And I think you touched on it earlier. We call it thought lock. You're going down the wrong path. Have you thought about this other pathway? We actually had that happen in one of the simulations we were running the other day. Somebody got on the wrong path, and somebody else said, I don't think it's that. Is it this? So it can help you. I would also like to see those four big ones, I call them, that you put up on the screen there, being simulated at every AANA national meeting and every AANA state meeting, at least annually. We know from the literature that your ACLS skills degrade at roughly three months. You recertify every two years, but your skills are going down at three months. And there are some people that may not certify. The more we simulate and the more we practice with our teams in our environments to identify those in situ mm -hmm. things, the better we're going to be when an actual crisis arises. You can do simulation on some minor things, but I think if we hit the four big ones relentlessly over and over, when a crisis happens, somebody in that room is probably going to have done it. And then when you take it back to your own facility, figure out how to run these sims, what you're missing, and then you do them with the tech, with the housekeeper, with whoever's in-house when the, the emergency happens, and they can get help. CRNAs know what to do. We know what to do. But when we ask for a piece of equipment, nobody knows where it is. They haven't used that thing in 10 years, and they're not sure where it is. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and we did another one, in a, and it was an OB hemorrhage in a small hospital, and the help never showed up. And it was like, we call, where the hell's the help? Well, security had started locking the door at the end of the hallway for security purposes at 5 p.m. and didn't tell anybody. That's the door the help comes through. So the insight to piece is so important. So when people do the Sims here at ANA or at their state meeting, I really want them to go back to their facility you said the, the manuals are free for download. They, ex they actually tell you to put your own phone numbers, your own location of your equipment, whatever, on them, and then print them. You can get them printed at any local Kinko's or whatever place you do it. They'll print it on a plastic paper, so then you can wipe them down, and the um, infectious disease people don't care. We have one in every single location that an anesthesia provider might be. We have them in all the ORs. We have them down in the ER. We have them on all the code carts. There's a, the regular manual. There's a separate OB manual. And then if your PEDS, Stanford doesn't do a PEDS manual, but there's PD Crisis 2.0, which you can download. They're paper and they're electronic, so you can put them on your Epic medical record. We have it integrated into mm -hmm. our Epic medical record, yeah, and I put sure. it on the nurse's computers as well because I can't be reading the thing and taking care of the patient, but mm -hmm. the nurse sure can. And that's part of the simulation process too, and that's the, that highlights the importance of doing it with everybody involved. Yeah. So, you know, whose job is what, and I, I love... I love the fact that you brought up that story about the help because that's like literally the first step yeah. in a crisis is call for help. <laughs> so we need to make sure that there's access for them for the help to get there. Yeah. So um, we've talked a lot about simulation today. We've talked some about checklists and this is really some fantastic information. So thank you both for all the work that you do. Um, it, it really is amazing and it's gonna help our profession. Attention nurse anesthetists, are you ready to take the first step toward being your own boss? Well, join us for a deep dive into the world of 1099 work with the upcoming workshop, 
understanding the 1099 landscape for CRNAs. Discover the key differences between W-2, PRN, and 1099 work, and equip yourself with essential knowledge, tools, and real-life case studies to make a confident switch to 1099. Not only will you earn up to 5.75 Class A CE credits, but you'll also have the opportunity to learn from the industry's finest, Jeremy Stanley, Sharon Pierce, and more seasoned experts. Plus, enjoy the vibrant sun and golden beaches of Fort Lauderdale while you're at it. This event, approved by the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology, is set for October 19th at the luxurious Marriott Harbor Beach Resort and Spa. Register now and take the first step toward being your own boss and potentially unlock higher earning potential as a 1099 employee. You can register right now at 1099workshop.aana.com. We'll also link to that in the description of today's show. This is an event not to be missed. We'll see you in Fort Lauderdale. Another thing that we can do to continue our learning as individuals is, and we like to call this on-demand, listening to podcasts. So for the last year, uh, myself, uh, Sass Elisha, we're going to get Dr. Gabbett involved too. Uh, we've been doing some podcast episodes with uh, Beyond the Mask. It's all about innovation. Uh, they talk a lot about history. They have history episodes. They have episodes on finance, episodes on politics. And so we, uh, Sass and I, we did an episode one time with them and just had such a fantastic time that uh, we got to talking one time with uh, both Sharon Pierce and Jeremy Stanley and thought to ourselves, you know, hey, what about adding some clinical to the podcast? Because we know there's a lot of people who listen to it and it would be valuable to have some, something that you can access whenever you want in terms of clinical. And they have, a, they have an episode that comes out each week. We have two clinical episodes that come out each month, so every other week. And... Uh, Jeremy and Sharon are here, and so guess what? We're gonna have them come on up. Come on down. All right. <laughs> you guys are all such good sports to do this with us. I know. Thank you. <laughs> all right, we're gonna start out. We wanna know, we wanna know, how did Beyond the Mask begin? It was very humble beginnings, wasn't it, Sharon? I mean, Sharon and I were at a meeting, and I've known Sharon for 20-plus years. Um, I mean, she's... Hard, because I'm 29. Yes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and, you know, we were talking about, hey, we need to do something together. Had no idea. All right, y'all, don't go there. No. (laughs) I I threw out a couple ideas, and Sharon goes, those suck. And I was like, (laughs) okay, what do you think? She said, well, let's, how about we do a podcast? I was like, Okay. So that was really literally how it began. Um, and He's at that good meeting, at taking directions, folks. <laughs> <laughs> at that meeting, we actually came up with a name through some help from another CRNA. And who, we weren't drinking. We're not drinking. Um, and uh, beyond the mask, we never knew what that name might mean, especially after and through COVID. So, Sharon, I know you have other things you want to add to that. No, I think you... Did I do good? You, you, a, good. You've got an A. All right, I got an A. So really, that was it. That was how it began. And, you know, it's really funny because me being a non-CRNA, but married to a CRNA and kind of work wife to CRNA and working with CRNAs every day, one of the things that was really missing from our podcast was Mm -hmm. clinical. And, you know, I always tell people, you know, I know a lot about 
CRNAs, know a lot about being a CRNA. I know what intubate means, you know, I know what propofol is. But if I had to give anesthesia or tell somebody how to do it, they're going to die. You know, they're going to, they're going to close claims. That would be me, you know. Um, but simulate for you. Simulate for me. You know, maybe I should go to the sim lab after this and, and start doing this. But when we found Jeremy Squared, and that's what I called yes. Jeremy Heiner, so he's Jeremy Squared. I thought, this is great, another Jeremy. And I always in my presentations, my wife's sitting over there, and she, she knows what's coming. I used to always say, you know, I really do think that I can intubate myself. I really found believe that, that I really can do could. it. <laughs> but I don't think I can wake myself up, and that's what all of you get paid to do. And Sarah would always say, you sound so stupid when you say that. Nobody could do that. That's the dumbest thing ever. And then I met Jeremy... And it can be done, and it's done by a Jeremy. So, yes. Yes. So, Jeremy and Sharon, from those humble beginnings, how many episodes have been released? For Close to 300 now. Yeah. And we're in the top wow. 50 medical podcasts in the country. Um, we're in the top 1% in the country as far as downloads go. We are download. We're, we're getting ready to... Hit about a million downloads, um, and so people like hearing this accent. I can't believe it. <laughs> but we do have a producer that edits us, makes everybody sound good. They can't speed me up, um, but we're, we've been very fortunate. We get anywhere from four to all right. You're the numbers guy. Yeah, you mean four thousand? Yeah, yeah, per it, episode. It runs between six and twenty thousand. Uh, downloads per episode. And we know there's more than that because if you actually listen to it and you're streaming it, you don't get credit for the downloads. So we know people stream it as well. Yeah. We just don't know how to count that. So. And now we've got, if for you educators out there, when you get your DMP, of course, you've got to disseminate your knowledge. Now we have a committee chaired by Sandy and Nancy, and students can submit their projects and they can, if they're chosen, we will tape them and that's their dissemination piece of their DMP project and in reality they'll probably get their message out much more by being on the podcast than standing at you know scholars day I went to Yale to get my doctorate we had scholars day and you stand up and well we didn't because of COVID but um, you you give your project you present your project right so you'll reach more people by being on the podcast you'll reach thousands and it's there for Ever. So it That's can good ever. and bad, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that dissemination piece. What, mm -hmm. a, what a fun way to disseminate. Do you guys have a favorite episode? Mm, we've got several favorite episodes. Uh, one of our favorites was the first time that we interviewed you guys. I don't normally wear a Depends, but I needed one that night because I no, we had a lot of fun. We laughed so, so much. We laughed yes. a lot. Hard yeah, we did. Whenever we did that, so hard. Me and three men. It's like a dream come true. Um, so that was obviously one of our favorite ones. What about you, Jeremy? Yeah, I have to say that was definitely a favorite one as well. And I will say that first time that we did that with you guys, I just happened to be podcasting remotely at Lake Norman in North Carolina and had had a little bit of alcohol, which made it even a little more funny. But uh, but that was a lot of fun. And then one of the ones that sticks out in, in my mind as well is uh, one we did in Pennsylvania with uh, <laughs> Brett Fajan. Did anybody know Brett? Heard about Brett? He's he's the only CRNA in the country that that 
works and he has one arm. One arm. So we're on stage, we're doing a podcast and we're talking and, and Brett's getting emotional because this is the first time he's really talked about, he, he didn't think he had a disability and then finally when he's, he was in school, he had to admit to himself he had a disability. And they so, had to declare. He had to yeah. declare he had a disability to get more help. And so we're on stage and he's, he's crying, he's visibly upset and Sharon's talking and Sharon, what did you say to him? Well, Jeremy asked him the question, had anybody ever made fun of him when he was growing up only having one arm? And he said, well, there was this one incident. Now, mind you, there are 400, 500 people in the audience. We're on the stage taping this live. And he said, well, I was on the bus. I was eight years old. And this kid made fun of me, so I took my prosthetic arm off, and I beat him with it. <laughs> and before I knew what was coming out of my mouth, I said, yeah, Brett Fajan, armed and dangerous. <laughs> and we were all like, we weren't sure where and, this was going. And then I was like, oh, my God, did I just say that? And armed he, and uh, you know, but it was uh, but it comic mood, relief sure. needed in the moment because he had gotten very emotional, could not speak. But ladies out there, let me tell you, I could not take my eyes off his wife the whole time. She was sitting like yeah. in a seat right there, and she's a nurse, and she watched that man. And I couldn't do anything but watch her because she so clearly adored and loved this man. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, man, would my husband look at me like that? <laughs> I mean, it was something to see. But he, it's a great episode. It yeah, it aired, really is. Uh, about a couple months ago, go back and listen to it. And just the armed and dangerous stuff is in there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much for all the work that you do. And everyone, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Cormac, Jeremy, Sharon. Thank you guys for being such good sports and coming up here. Um, that's what we have for you guys today in terms of crisis management on demand, how we think about a crisis, what we can do to improve and what we can do to continue to learn. So thank you all for your attention today. And thank you to our listeners. We appreciate you hanging out with us today. If you like what you've heard, please consider sharing it with one of your friends. Okay, CRNA Nation, that's it for this episode. Remember, keep ventilating, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. We are an NBCRNA recognized provider offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior approved Class A CE credits with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com 
your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.